The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Asset owners are secret weapons in the fight against climate change. So our pre-COP26 podcast series had to include a chat with a key player in the sector. Hear my conversation with the head of board governance and sustainability at CalPERS, Anne Simpson. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with the key people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm George Hay, Associate Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from London. For this week's episode, I chatted to Anne Simpson, Managing Investment Director for Board Governance and Sustainability at the California Public Employees Retirement System. We talked about the plethora of climate change groupings with which CalPERS is closely associated, and also about how to tell when a company's net zero target isn't up to scratch. We also address some of the heat CalPERS itself has taken for how it engages with oil groups like BP. Finally, this being a pre-COP26 chat, we also talked about what she expects to be achieved at November's conference. Give it a listen. Okay, so Anne, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Hello, George. Excellent. Well, I think, first of all, I just want to ask you about the kind of plethora of initiatives and groups that there are in the kind of asset management and asset owner space with a view to net zero. And there's a whole load of new ones, which are kind of vaguely to do with Mark Carney, uh, like the Net Zero Zero Asset Owners Alliance and um, all those kind of things. But one that you've been closely associated with is Climate Action 100 Plus. Mm. And I just wanted to start, first of all, by could you just kind of set out from your perspective, you explain to an outsider what that body does and how it fits together with all the other ones that are kind of (laughs) out there. This may take all the all the podcasts, but um, see how we go. Well, I, I think we get credit to begin with by not being an acronym. Right. The alphabet. The alphabet. um, But, you know, just just a note of thanks to Mark, uh, you know, because what Mark Carney is doing in the famous GFANS, the acronym for the um, uh, is an attempt to bring the acronyms together. So we, we can look at all these initiatives and say there's such a plethora of activity. This is a good thing. Everybody's at it. Everybody's trying to work out what we do on climate change and the financial markets. But we really are at a point now where it all needs to be brought together. So in bringing it all together, good question, where does Climate Action 100 plus fit in? Um, So let me explain what we're trying to do and explain what it is. That's the first piece. So back in 2015, CalPERS we, you know, dutifully went to Paris to be part of the finance track negotiations. And there we were wagging our fingers at the government delegates and the business and civil society communities really, you know, sounding stern on what we all need to do in order to what was then called um, holding global warming to well below two degrees. That's now been firmed up a bit uh, to 1.5 degrees Celsius net zero. But the question is, it's very hard because we don't have the data, we don't have the corporate reporting yet to work out how much of this problem do we already own? Um, Where are the emissions in our portfolio? So what we did at CalPERS was 
you know, what gets called a carbon footprint, try to assess the various emissions coming from the companies we had in our portfolio at that point. There were around 10,000 holdings in close to 50 markets. So this is not an exercise for the faint hearted. But anyway, we estimated, guesstimated where we didn't have data. You can call it modeling to sound a little bit more uh, professional about the exercise. But anyway, the, the important thing here is for that 10,000 uh, company portfolio in public markets, we found that about 100 companies on their own were responsible for a, about 85% of industrial emissions. So this is jaw dropping. If there are about 100 companies responsible for producing the bulk of the emissions, then that's really where we need to put our attention. We know that climate change poses this tremendous risk to our portfolio. We also know the transition to net zero is going to bring lots of investment opportunity. But the first thing we want to do is make sure these emissions get brought down. So we shared this analysis with um, other asset owners and investors at beautiful French breakfasts hosted by the uh, ambassador to the UN, uh, <laughs> right. Francois de Latre, who gets tremendous credit for being so hospitable, but it made us able to sort of sit down with other investors and say, look, if this is true for CalPERS, maybe it's true for you as well. We're all a bit of a victim of modern portfolio theory in that while our holdings are so diversified, we think we've only got a little bit of the big problems that we're dealing with and we're diversifying our way out of it. But of course, with a systemic risk like climate change, you can't diversify your way out of that. There's certainly for a fund as big as CalPERS, there's nowhere to hide. We have got to address the, the root cause, which in this case is bringing emissions down. Right. The, the idea was we have got to overcome a tragedy of the commons, which is the investor community owns, collectively owns the problem, but we mm. can't be part of the solution unless we team up and drive change at the companies. So that now is an initiative with 55 trillion, uh, a pretty eye-popping number, uh, in signatories supporting this action. And I think you might have seen in... Um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance just ran mm. the numbers of the progress we're making. So we have 111 of these, what we're calling systemically important carbon emitters. Those uh, companies where we have negotiated, if you like, net zero commitments, making good on that will cut about 25% of global emissions. It's sort of equivalent yeah. to the annual emissions of China. Right. So the way we fit in with the acronyms is, I would say, the action part. <laughs> right. We are beyond um, statements and, um, you know, the warm words on the topic. It's called climate action for a very clear reason. We have to get these systemically important emitters to net zero. And that will only happen if uh, the owners of the companies drive that change. So right. that's okay. what we're up to. But yeah, but um, I mean, in, in terms of um, you know what G fans is going to do, and uh, I mean, and what it's going to you know announce at COP uh, in, in in November. Um, I mean, how how optimistic are you that uh, they will uh, that um that it, he he can kind of make progress and kind of bring all these disparate 
bodies together uh, beyond what is always already the case? I mean, what are the challenges to doing doing that? Well, it's a bit like a New Orleans marching band. You've got different people with different instruments coming along and busking and improvising around the common theme, which is, you know, sorting out the risks of climate change. Yeah. Maybe uh, the advantage, I think, that we've got with Mark's role, both for COP26 and obviously his prior leadership all around, is turning this marching band into something uh, a bit more organised. Um, and certainly for CalPERS, we've been involved with and we support many of these different initiatives, but we're not going to make the progress that we need unless we all get organised. So this really is, I think, um, you know, the GFANS is a, a very welcome effort to convene and coordinate in order to deliver better results. And I think this is also going to be good for companies because it can be confusing, you know, which of these acronyms is calling for what, when, why, and how. So getting clarity about a shared ambition, the trajectory to net zero, what the financial markets can and can't do, and also I think giving us um, a common voice with policymakers and regulators around the world, because money talks, for sure. The money can move this, but we can't do it unless we get some policy measures like Carbon pricing is going to make a big difference. Uh, removal of fossil fuel subsidies, that's distorting market uh, efficiency. We also need back to the problem with the, um, you know, the noise around data. We need standardised corporate reporting. That's pretty fundamental to markets working well. So I think this is very welcome. Um, so if you're going to get us all singing from the same hymn sheet, rather than busking around uh, with uh, different bits of music, then, uh, you know, all, all, all power to Mark uh, to be our conductor. We're right, okay. all going to benefit from that. Right, OK. But, I mean, uh, if we're talking about a kind of cor a corporate net zero goal, um, what, what, what are the components to you of um, uh, one that is kind of, uh, fit for purpose, good enough. Um, and what are the ones, you know, or, or what, 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 what do they need to have in order to kind of pass muster in your view? Obviously, they've got to be 2015 at zero. That's goes without saying, uh -huh. but like there are other things. Yeah. So with Climate Action 100 Plus, we spent a lot of time with the investors, the founders, uh, talking that idea through. You know, we made the case for why we're now at that stage of how do we get this done? And what is it that a cement company in Nigeria needs to be doing? What about, you know, a coal-fired utility in Kentucky in the United States and maybe a chemicals plant in Taiwan? That it was not a trivial piece of work to decide what's the what are the common goals. Anyway, we yeah. landed on three. Number one, governance. The board of directors has to be held accountable for developing a strategy for the transition. And that has got some pieces in it that really matter. For example, making sure that lobbying, political lobbying, is all lined up with the Paris goals, as opposed to through trade associations or quietly through the back door, undermining policymakers' ability to do what's needed. Right. Uh, making sure that incentives in the company are lined up 
you're paying people to expand proven reserves of oil, no surprise, people's attention isn't going to be on the shift to low carbon. Uh, Also, the just transition, making sure that the strategy has assessed and consulted with and understood the impact on the workforce, on communities, to those who are vulnerable in the supply chain, all of that. That's the governance goal, number one. Number two, targets. Of course, we started off with the Paris language of well below two degrees. Uh, We've firmed that up now to net zero uh, uh, by 2050 in order to hold global warming to 1.5. So that's got more specific and the IEA work in the meantime since we got started has been really valuable. The third goal, obviously, disclosure. Tell us all about it. Now, we found the TCFD framework uh, a very good starting point, but we've supplemented that uh, with sector relevant analysis uh, that, you know, investor expectations. And also we're sort of tracking into the accounting and audit because ultimately we've got to have climate reporting integrated into the financials. So those were the three goals, uh, governance, targets and disclosure. So then the question was, once you get, and as I said, with the first, you know, couple of years, uh, we're in our third year now, it's not long, but we have, I think, through the weight of money behind this, got these uh, 111 companies out of the 160 odd in the list to make these net zero commitments. That is a phenomenal ambition. Mm. Um, We've got PetroChina, we've got oil companies, steel companies, uh, cement companies, Muller Maersk Shipping. You look at the list of those companies, it's extraordinary. And then the next question is, well, how do we know they're going to get there? It's all very well. It's a bit like, yeah, um, uh, you you look at the sort of uh, self-improvement books on any shelf, uh, the two-minute manager, the seven things, get things. How do you actually know companies are going to be making progress? So that led to another piece of work uh, to develop a net zero company benchmark, which would track specific measures supported by these sector strategy papers that we've been developing so that every time we come to an annual general meeting and we're casting votes on the board of directors who we need to hold accountable and we're reviewing the report and accounts and we're looking at the auditor and what they did or didn't comment upon we have got a way to assess where are these companies on the the journey to the net zero so all right we can you know be very confucian about this and say a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step but Um, The important thing is we've got an annual check-in at every company where we have to cast votes. So the baseline report that we produced against this benchmark has got 10 sections that break out these issues that I've just been talking about um, with short, medium and long-term emissions reductions targets. So that's the But along the way, we're also looking at alignment of CapEx what the heck is going on with political lobbying and just finished consultations around what we expect companies to be doing around this idea of the just transition. Now, that's really important because then we can start to, um, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt always advised, uh, speak softly, but carry a big stick. And ultimately investors, um, which is the vote. Right. Well, I mean, that's and that's that's a good segue into um, 
if we look, think of kind of the AGM se- um, season this year, um, uh, so there was there was a bit of kind of um, discontent with some of the kind of green lobbyist activists who uh, were unhappy with Climate Action 100 Plus and Calpers, um, specifically to do with BP because they were saying, oh. Um, you didn't vote in favour of a motion requiring them to do more about climate change. Um, now, was the was was the reason there was because you are you basically happy that BP? I mean, BP is clearly transitioning more than some of the other oil majors, um, or more meaningfully. But was the reason you didn't um, vote in favour of that motion because you think BP is basically doing enough, or because? You, you do accept that it isn't doing enough, but you think it, it needs to be given some breathing space to do its transition in what is a difficult time. Um, I mean, or something else. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I have great sympathy with the NGOs, um, you know, the, uh, and the civil society groups and the activists mm. who are filing proposals because they want to see um, more happening now. And I get yeah. that. And we agree with them. The question is, once we have won the vote at a company, which we did, you know, the year before at BP, um, that vote, uh, you know, it came through obviously a different channel, came through mm. the, you know, Climate Action 100 Plus, and and BP says, okay, we we get it. Let here's let's just you know look at some of the things BP's doing. We've got to measure progress towards that net zero 2050 goal. Um, yeah. They've for example, in our benchmark that you know we ran uh, the assessment for the first time this year, BP is one of only eight companies in that list of the biggest emitters in the world that has started mm. to substantially align capex. They're close to yeah. half. This yeah. is so far down the road from where other companies are. Um, you know, our judgment was if we're at a situation with a with a company where we're not getting progress. And we've talked and we've talked and we've talked some more and we've had shareholder proposals and we've won them and the company's not got cracking. Then what Mm. we do is go to the board. Then it's Mm. time to say thank you and good night. It's time to replace the directors. I think Mm. coming back on the same issue year after year, once a company has actually agreed to get on with it, Mm. um, to us just it's not certainly for CalPERS, it's such a big investor. We're going to be owners of these companies for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, we've got to be measured and we've also got to acknowledge when a company responds. So, again, I don't want to knock the NGOs. I don't want to let undermine what they're doing. They bring the voice of civil society and this is powerful and it's important and it keeps the pressure on. However, mm. we are fiduciaries. And, you know, if, if I came round to your house and rang the doorbell and said, let me in, I need to talk to you about things. And you said, all right, come in, sit down. What do we need to sort out? And then I went back out again. And I came back and I rang the bell again and said, let me in. We need to talk about, you know, it's a bit like that. If we're talking at board level, at CEO level with these companies and we've got commitments that we can measure and we can come back and track the progress and hold them accountable, um, that's how it's going to work well. But, mm. you know, the NGOs really do play an important role, but they're not managing huge sums of money in the same way that we are. 
Um, so we've got to look at this from a fiduciary point of view. Um, you know, I welcome all the dialogue and the input from the civil society groups. They're really vital to this whole process. Civil society itself is going to be responsible for ensuring, you know, consumer demand and political yeah. will are heading in the right direction. You know, so, you know, how we get around, how we make things, what we eat, what what we choose to spend our money on is going to be incredibly important in shifting the demand for fossil fuels. So we must keep that in mind. And in many markets, whether directly through democracy or otherwise, the role of civil society is going to be absolutely essential for making sure that governments, uh, policymakers, regulators hold their part. So we've got to view this ultimately as a partnership. But, you know, like any partnership, um, there'll be disagreements. So, mm. uh, and also the other thing, uh, look at where our attention went. Having things are rolling with BP, our attention then was on Exxon and Chevron. Mm. Uh, mm. At Chevron, you know, shareholders, we won the vote to call mm. on Chevron to actually cut emissions by a very significant amount. That was pretty mm. incredible. And at Exxon, as you know, working very closely um, uh, with Engine One, fellow investors, Calsters, our sister fund uh, over the mm -hmm. river and others, yeah. we've replaced three directors on the board of Exxon. And that was a yeah. heroic effort. And arguably, if you've got, you know, limited hours in the day, attention and focus, do we, you know, keep another role of uh, discussion through a share and a proposal at BP, or have we got bigger fish to fry this season? And to, to be right. honest, um, our attention was on Exxon because there was no, uh, no the progress um, has not even begun. Um, right. Just, and just, just, remember, we're going to get this annual check-in with the benchmark each year. Sure. Sure. So. Just, just um, while we're, we're on the subject of um, uh, fiduciary duty thing, just uh, um, how would you say things have changed? under the new US administration. Um, certainly the uh, under the previous one, you, I did often find that um, you talk to American asset managers and asset owners and they would just use the fiduciary duty as just a bit of a kind of shield to just say, well, you know, that's this is what we care about and we can't do, we know we're not really going to do we're not going to go beyond that and therefore we're not going to ask the searching questions of um, boards on climate change. Um, would you say that, would you say things have changed or how do you think they've changed under the new administration? I'd, I'd go back to what fiduciary duty actually is and I know we're talking about recent shifts but remember this idea of fiduciary duty goes all the way back to the Crusades. Trust law has its origins you know, as the Crusaders went off to fight religious wars around protecting Christendom, left behind their property, which included wives, animals, servants, and uh, all the rest. And the duties of the trustee, in other words, the person to whom these assets were entrusted by the departing uh, Crusader, were established way back then. And they're very obvious. I mean, first of all, be prudent. You know, when I come back, I don't want my you know, cattle to be dead or my fields to be unplowed. Prudence, loyalty, you owe all your duties just to me, the owner, ultimate owner of the property. You can't be 
fooling around doing things that you know other people might want you to do and the third concept in fiduciary duty is a duty of care in other words pay attention you can't be off in the next county drinking beer you've got to be there taking care of the assets which are entrusted to you so you know fast forward all the way to now this concept of fiduciary duty is what governs us whenever we are looking after other people's money so for a pension fund right now like calpers imagine a world where i would be doing this you know interview with you and you say and climate change i'm looking out the window wildfires drought the California economy hit so hard, like many other parts of the world. And I was like, well, you know, it, um, I, I'm not going to pay attention to climate change. As I, to be prudent, uh, I have to pay attention to risk. My duty of care means I have to be paying attention to unconventional risk, new risk, things that might undermine the assets, because our assets, yeah. pension fund, belong ultimately to our two million members. And loyalty. I should only be considering their interests, which are mostly very long term. So if you then start to look at the way this has been interpreted, it depends a little on who you ask. So um, under the previous administration in the United States, the Department of Labor, which which doesn't regulate CalPERS, just to be clear, it regulates um, uh, corporate funds, which are governed Mm. under you know statute called ERISA, Employee Retirement. Security Act, etc., came forward with this idea that investors should not be pursuing topics like environmental, social, and governance issues unless they could demonstrate that it really mattered to risk and return. To which we'd say, well, yes, of (laughs) course, that's what your fiduciary duty is, is to make sure you're being prudent and loyal and you're taking care of other people's money. If in your investment process, as did we when we were building out our sustainable investment strategy for our total portfolio, remember, not just public equities, but uh, private equities, uh, real assets and infrastructure, uh, fixed income portfolio, we take a total fund view of this. We went through an extraordinarily detailed research exercise. We commissioned Um, a review of uh, the evidence at that point through teams of academics and published all of this in case you ever want to wallow around in about 1800 uh, papers written by very clever people. What we did out of that process was sift out the issues where we had the evidence and the insight that this really mattered to risk and return for a fund of our size. We're close to half a trillion dollars with liabilities that run for almost a century. With that perspective, what matters to CalPERS will probably look a bit different to, say, a small investor or a day trader or someone riding the waves of algorithms in and out of high-frequency trading because they're a fiduciary. So when the new administration came in, they said the same thing that had been said previously. They said trustees of pension funds must not be uh, pursuing issues unless it is a pecuniary matter, which right. is a sort of a bit of a posh word for saying, is it going to is it going to matter to risk and return? Is it going to matter? So these, I think, have have been a bit of shadow boxing around what really is at issue, which is how do we make sure that 
companies are on a track to sustainability. How do we yeah. make sure that investors are properly holding directors accountable for being the stewards of the financial capital? But as we would say at Calpers, you know, we want to see effective management, not just of financial capital, but understanding that human capital and physical capital, these three forms of capital, when they are well managed, are the ultimate source. Uh, they're the long term drivers of value. Also, obviously, sources of risk. So, I, you, you know, there's sort of, it, I don't know in which century uh, people were arguing about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. To me, this is the legal <laughs> version of the same thing. Um, if you understand your fiduciary duty, uh, it is unavoidable to confront risks and seek returns. And with that simple framework that you learn on day one going into the investment, any investment hmm. job at whatever age, once you understand that, then, of course, you're going to be looking at uh, climate change. You're going to be thinking about human capital management. You're going to be wondering about diversity, equity and inclusion. You'll be thinking about board governance. What's happening with executive pay? What are we incentivizing people to do and over what time period? So in, in a way, because a lot of this gets called back to acronyms, back to the world of the alphabet soup, ESG mm. is not for us a very good way to think about this because there's no F for finance in that acronym. It suggests that ESG is sort of something over there and you've then got to work hard to wonder how to integrate it into your financials. If right. you think about this holistic approach that we've got at Calpers that we've developed in our investment beliefs, we understand that human capital and that natural capital have to be managed and boards need to be held accountable for that management and report on the management thereof, but it's all integrated with the financial elements. So if you start there, the fiduciary duty will keep you um, on the track for progress and not the road to perdition. So I think okay. we have to treat some of this as political noise rather than okay. economics. Oh, fair enough. So um, pretty uh, obviously we have uh, COP26 uh, starting in November and uh, we will probably see some, um, you know, a, a number of uh, new initiatives that we were talking about before um, and they will maybe make more pledges. But um, just in, in the kind of widest sense, what do you um, what do you realistically expect uh, from COP? Um, I mean, specifically in the kind of financial sector, um, obviously we hope that there will be some kind of pledges uh, from the NDCs in terms of national emissions, but like particularly from the financial sector, what do you think it can do, if anything? <laughs> okay, um, what can it do? What will it do? Um, um, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe what will it do then? What yeah, will it do? What will it do? Uh, two things we asked for in Paris, that's 2015, and this was then an alliance under an initiative called the, the Global Investor Coalition. Um, Calpers was a member. I went to Paris uh, to speak for that group. We, we said um, we're, we're all set up and ready to do our part, but we need, we need two things which are designed to improve our ability to allocate capital and ultimately to make the market work the financial markets work on this issue. 
One is information. We need risk reporting on climate change, which is standardized, mandatory, timely, integrated into the financials, and guess what? Signed off by the auditor. Right. Um, that is now within reach. We've got IFRS um, setting up its new uh, International Sustainability Standards Board, which will work within that uh, architecture alongside the Accounting Standards Board. And IFRS, the International Financial Reporting Standards, they are used by 140 countries. So the delivery mechanism of IFRS for getting climate risk reporting through is phenomenal. The potential there is phenomenal. So getting and the G7 sign off on this, the G20 sign off on this. So really, we just need the sprinkle of holy water from COP26 to get that moving. Right. This also is going to be incredibly helpful to the SEC under the new administration. Although I do want to note back to a little, you know, history moment here again. The SEC in 2010, in response to investors led by Ceres, uh, a wonderful group that Calpers supports, Ceres led um, this call for climate risk to be um, required as an element in risk reporting in US under US GAAP, which is what mm. the United States uses, which is um, you know similar but a bit different to the IFRS. We've sort of got a little bit like you know two pin plugs and three pin plugs <laughs> you can find a way to connect them uh, eventually but we're, we're in that world it's okay there's been a lot of reconciliation between the two systems but the sec uh under gensler and under the interim chair alison heron lee have put climate risk um onto the rulemaking docket onto the agenda yeah. Now, yeah. rulemaking in the in, in the US is complicated and it can be fraught and it can ultimately be subject to litigation. So the US is going to have to work quite carefully in that process. However, note the work of the Value Reporting Foundation. I was just today on a meeting of the Investor Advisory Group, which Calpers sits on. It's at a point now where investors supporting this framework, not just for climate change, but human capital management, those investors supporting this now own about 47% of the S&P 500. Right. So again, the money is driving the, the need for reporting. We're a little bit in a position of waiting for the regulators to catch up. Anyway, so that's number one, market information, the ability to price risk, and of course, right. understand opportunity. The second thing we want is going to be more complicated. We want the distortions in the market um, to be ironed out. And these come from incentives that are misaligned, to say the least, with the Paris goals. Obviously, fossil fuel subsidies, mm -hmm. they were brought in in an age when fears about energy security uh, were at the top of mind. We've got a different risk to worry about now. Um, we've still got real challenges globally in terms of access to affordable energy. There are many big energy producing markets, think of India, think of Nigeria, where although right. these are big energy producing and exporting countries, um, their own people, you know, tens of millions of people don't have access to electricity. So put that just to one side for the moment, but the subsidies have got to go. The other thing that we need is carbon pricing. 
Because the externality, as economists like to call it, carbon gets a free ride and the taxpayer ends up picking up the tab for the damage by the cost of carbon, which, which is caused by carbon. So we're seeing this now being reflected through litigation. I think the tremendous work of Client Earth, for example, the recent court case at Shell, um, the, the amount of litigation uh, on this question really of externalities is profound. And obviously, you know, CalPERS is based in California. We've long had a cap and trade scheme, um, which also generates revenue for governments. You might yeah, be wondering absolutely. how to finance the, you know, what's rightly called the just transition, uh, which is part of the preamble to the Paris Agreement. But, you know, when you think about, you know, I remember one of the first companies we were engaging, it was, you know, just before, uh, just before Paris, um, uh, PPL, a big utility, and here we are, please, net zero goals, and it was, okay, let's let's go there. How to do that? Well, we'll just shutter a whole lot of coal plants in Kentucky, mm. and therefore, without a thought at that stage about, well, what does this mean for the workforce, for the communities? Yeah. yeah. You know, Arizona, the Navajo Nation facing, they've got, a, a, you know, heavy... Uh, reliance on the economics around a coal-fired station when that goes down. So we've got, obviously, that then uh, exacerbates inequality, ec economic uh, strife, and social strife ultimately will come from this, and that can then cause a political backlash. So whether you care about this because it's the right thing to do or you understand the economics, we have to get um, carbon pricing in place we have to remove fossil fuel subsidies. It's got to be done in a thoughtful way so that we're not upending uh, poverty alleviation, access to energy. All of those issues need to be taken care of as well. We have to be able to walk and chew gum on this one. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, information and incentives, these are the two things. I think the big question in the US is whether the federal government uh, is going to be able to pull off carbon pricing with the current very slim majority yeah. that, that's there in Congress. But the other thing to recognize is investors are pushing for companies to model a price on carbon in their reporting, which is a very good thing. And also, if you look at what's going on at state level, the biggest state level economies have moved or are moving in this direction. So the US is quite a complicated place. The federal government has a layer of responsibility. It's extremely powerful, but a lot of uh, what matters on the climate change agenda is being driven at state level, city level. I mean, look at New York City, look at New York State, look at California. Um, you've got a huge chunk of the American economy right there already lined up on these issues. Right. Okay. But I mean, you're, so there's, there are kind of a couple of key things you're hoping to, to, to see. Um, uh but um would you be optimistic of process progress on 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 any of them yes i i think there are racing odds good odds um on uh climate risk reporting which is one of the two things that we really need we need the information markets you know live and breathe on information and we don't have it at the moment We've got smoke and mirrors and not information. So decision, okay. yeah. So we're going to we're going to get that. And that really is because um, I think investors 
have just become increasingly clear with regulators that this has got to happen, that it's um, it's relevant as a, as a you, you know, accounting, uh, accounting for climate risk is essential. Um, yes. That is one thing. Carbon pricing, we have a, it is a patchwork quilt of different initiatives that we have at the moment. It's about 30% uh, of, you know, current emissions are covered through some form of carbon pricing at the moment. But yeah. um, the, the political dynamics around this are peculiarly complex. And that yeah. in part is because in the fossil fuel industry itself, there are winners and losers. So yeah. many oil companies, I remember Calpers, or, or I, I was uh, at the Vatican uh, a couple of years ago um, for an initiative Pope Francis convened called Care for Our Common Home. And it was a, a meeting of oil company chief executives and major investors. So the CEOs of Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, ENI, and others were there, and big investors, obviously Calpers, uh, Norges, BlackRock, State Street, um, and and more, and GPIF from Japan. Uh, it's the world's biggest asset owner. Right, right, right. What came out of that at the second meeting the following year was a statement. You would never think uh, maybe a group of oil chief executives and uh, a mix of pension funds and asset managers could get together and agree on two things. But we did. And, you know, all praise to the convening power and um, moral suasion of Pope Francis mm. on this one. <laughs> um, I would say we, we had two statements that, that came out as commitments. One was for climate risk reporting in line with the task force on climate-related financial disclosure, the Mark Carney, back to Mark Carney. He was yeah. chair of the Financial Stability Board back in the day uh, as governor of the Bank of England. And that initiative was giving us our first agreed um, global framework for climate risk reporting. All the CEOs from the oil companies and the investors signed off, yes, this is what we need. So I'd say very strong market support, and that matters, even in politics, that matters. This second statement might surprise you, but it's uh, to support carbon pricing. So yeah. think about that. If you have big oil supporting carbon pricing, it's because they see how that is going to actually um, foster or, you know, foster a transition into which they can be successful businesses. However, a price on carbon is going to mean that other businesses, uh, the full economic cost of the heavy carbon it's going to have an impact on coal on tar sands um, yeah. and other elements so the the lobbying around this uh is is both a political issue and there are some mixed economic impact that we have to take account of as well but yeah. you know what that if the price is right um to quote a favorite show from years ago if the price is right and it's got to be a political price as well as an economic price. If the price is right and this can be staged and it can be um, uh, put into, I mean, the big interesting debate at the moment about cross-border carbon pricing is extremely interesting because this might be a way in which international trade flows start to, um, you know, aid uh, and abet in, the, in a good cause here. The other thing I would just mention is all is not lost in the United States, even though uh, Biden has these formidable and complex political 
challenges at the moment on these topics. The CFTC, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, is one of the regulatory bodies in the US overseen by the SEC and under the Trump administration formed a climate risk commission. Yeah. Trump has served on that. My colleague Divya Mankikar served as the asset owner representative, led by Bob Litterman, um, former Goldman Sachs, now running Kipos, a very interesting new initiative. The point of this US regulator came out with a whole set of recommendations, which include both the two things we've just been talking about, mandatory risk reporting and carbon pricing as a critical element of improving safety and soundness in the commodities markets. Now, the CFTC includes regulating, and these people, these industries were represented on the commission, oil, big oil, dairy, corn, soy. These industries are in, you know, the in in the in the nexus, the the cross, uh, you know, the cross forces around climate change um, yeah. and, and experiencing incredible impact. The recommendations uh, under the previous administration were signed off with complete unanimity from the you know the regulatory side the investors and uh the the business side the representatives and the banks as well banks were represented on that initiative so i think at the end of the day we can get very caught up in you know the the fuss and bother of politics and politics matters because policy matters regulation matters but i think that ultimately um physics the science of what's going on and finance, that's a powerful combination. Yeah, I think so. I think, money, I think so. Yeah, me, money ultimately is is um, driven over the long term by the more rational side of, of human behaviour. Okay, well, let's hope so. Um, I think we're going to leave it there. But um, listen, thanks so much for your uh, time. Uh, it was a really interesting chat. And um, uh, we'll see what happens at COP. But um, thanks for your time. Well, I'll be there. So maybe we need to do part two, dear reader. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks very much to Anne Simpson. And thanks to you for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lam and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. Also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter where our handle is at breakingviews.